Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm speaking with Lee Smith about Guests on Earth. Her 14th novel traces the events leading up to the death of Zelda Fitzgerald in March 1948. After a fairy tale girlhood and a wild and cosmopolitan decade as the young wife of the well-known writer F. Scott Fitzgerald, Zelda increasingly struggled with schizophrenia. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm speaking with Lee Smith about Guests on Earth. Her 14th novel traces the events leading up to the death of Zelda Fitzgerald in March 1948. After a fairy tale girlhood and a wild and cosmopolitan decade as the young wife of the well known writer F. Scott Fitzgerald, Zelda increasingly struggled with schizophrenia, going in and out of mental hospitals, especially Highland Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, where she died in a fire that killed nine women locked inside a ward on the top floor. Through the experiences of Zelda and the other patients at Highland, Lee Smith explores what constitutes craziness and how our concepts of insanity and appropriate treatments for it change over time. Although Zelda's death is the focal point of the novel, her story is told from the perspective of Evelina Toussaint, who enters Highland Hospital as a patient in 1936 at the age of 13. She is the eye of the passage that follows. Chapter 1 for years, I have intended to write my own impressions of Mrs. Zelda Fitzgerald. From the time I first encountered her when I was but a child, myself, at Highland Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, in 1937, and then a decade later during the several months leading up to the mysterious tragedy of 1948, I bring a certain insight and new information to this horrific event that changed all our lives forever, those of us living there upon that mountain at that time. This is not my story, then, in the sense that Mr. Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby was not Nick Carraway's story, either. Yet Nick Carraway is the narrator, is he not? Is any story not always the narrator's story in the end? Therefore, I shall now introduce myself as humbly and yet as fully as necessary, so that you may know who is telling you this tale and why it has haunted me all my life. We must strike up an acquaintance, you and I, if not a friendship, as perhaps the circumstances of my early life are dark and bizarre enough to put you well off that. Enough, as Mrs. Carroll used to say, rapping on my fingers with that pencil above the ivory keys. We begin, then. My name is Evelina Toussaint, a romantic name, is it not? A courtesan's name, which, under the circumstances, was fitting, though not, never, for me, myself, a slight ratty sort of child with flyaway hair and enormous pale eyes that made everyone uncomfortable, then as now. I am at present a thin, bookish sort of person whom you would never notice if you pass me in the street, which you will not. Yet I was always my mother's child through and through, my mother's beloved child, her only child, her helpful little right hand, as she called me. Lee Smith has won the Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the North Carolina Award for Literature, and a Southern Book Critics Circle Award. And now, let us welcome her to New Books in Historical Fiction. Lee, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us today. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and thanks for your interest in Guests on Earth. 
Uh, it's a wonderful book. I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you. Uh, please start by telling us something about you, where you grew up, how you became a writer. You've got a long list of novels to your credit and some short story collections and even, I think, a play. So uh, tell us something about you. Okay. Well, I grew up, I was lucky enough, I should say, to grow up in the deep uh, hollers of the Appalachian Mountains of southwest Virginia. Um, but when I say Virginia, the place where I grew up, Grundy, Virginia, bears no relation to any image that's going to come into your mind when I say Virginia, because there were no uh, no columns, for instance, in the county, except on the Presbyterian Church, and uh, very, very Appalachian, very close to Hazard, Kentucky, and Harlan, Kentucky, and an entirely a coal mining town, which was very remote and hard to get to when I was growing up there. I was born in 1944. So I have to say, um, when I was young, I just was so surrounded by relatives, and everybody knew it. She couldn't do a thing and get away with it. And so I was just dying to, you know, to get away. But later, I would, in short order, realize that I was hearing had heard the best stories that I would ever hear in my life. And once I got to college and started seriously writing, um, I, I realized that very soon. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Holland's University in Roanoke, Virginia, and that was a place that at that time did have a terrific undergraduate writing program, which was very you know, very hard to find. I, I didn't even know they had it. I just went there because my cousin liked the college, and she got a husband, so I thought, aha, I'll go there. But um, it turned out that I had always been a really serious reader and a really serious writer, and that was just like, a, you know, falling into heaven for me. I was writing always as a child. In fact, I think I really started writing because I... um wanted to write more and more onto the, onto my favorite book so that they wouldn't be over. So I was always writing more chapters onto The Secret Garden or whatever it might, Johnny Tremaine, whatever it might happen to be, Heidi, and including myself, I should say, in the plot. So I was I was addicted to writing and reading very seriously, very early. Um, though I would write several novels before I was able actually to use the wonderful Appalachian stories and material that I had had gained from growing up there because it was a while bef before I could figure out how to do that because it's such oral storytelling and it was a long time before I could figure out how to write dialect without making it sound like hee-haw. And it was a long time before I would... Uh, read enough Faulkner to understand that I could have multiple narrators telling the story of a whole community and so on. But I finally did, was able to use the, you know, because meanwhile, I, while I was writing other things and, and having children and working on newspapers, I was recording my family and our family friends in the mountains every chance I got and learning as much as I could about early life there. So at last I was able to write what I think of as my Appalachian books. Um, one of them is named Oral History. It's based upon a witch tale, and it, it tells the story of one family in one holler, um, 
for, you know, four generations. And then another one is Fair and Tender Ladies, based on one of my favorite ballads. And um, this one, I think, is the one that has uh, sold and sold and sold over time. And I, I know 11 babies that have been named Ivy for the main character there. And I wrote that to honor the hard lives of all the mountain women in my family and the the women that I grew up around. I mean, women who had to just keep on keeping on and had little education and too many babies but were, to my mind, heroic. And so I'm real proud of that book. Uh, The Devil's Dream tells the whole story of country music through one singing family, the Bailey family, based to some degree upon the Carters. I used to go hear music at A.P. Carter's store growing up. So anyway, this is this is my uh, where I come from and my, my roots. Um, I've written a lot of more contemporary short stories, I think, several collections of stories. I've done a real oral history of, of my town and my county and, um, and have written um, several more contemporary novels. But I, I'm drawn. I'm really drawn to to history. I love the research always, and it's very hard for me to stop researching anything and actually start writing because you know you keep going and, and you find one great remark that has just got to go in there and something else that you didn't know about. So it it's like an addiction too. Yeah, I think it is. It's uh, the research is the most fun for me too. Uh, I saw from the video on your website that you write all your novels, novels at longhand uh, on your I do. <laughs> I do. I mean, I know people look at me like I'm crazy, and anyone who has seen that video, particularly young people who have seen that video on my website, are just horrified that I'm still writing by longhand. But, you know, that's how I started out. And uh, even when I was taping people, I was always taking notes. I was always writing longhand. And so... It seems to me that it just helps me because I, I am really, I'm not a, a writerly writer. I'm much more of a storyteller, and stories always come to me in a human voice, whether it's the voice of the main character or the voice, because I used a lot of first-person narration because of being a kind of a storyteller. I like to let them speak for themselves, and... Uh, to me, it's like I hear their voices in my ear, and I'm just kind of writing it down. I'm like the ghostwriter somehow in between, and I don't want any mechanical thing between me and the story, between me and the narrator. And sometimes, of course, if I don't have a first-person narrator, it's just the voice of the story itself. But I think to, to get it day, I'm interested in people. I'm interested in the human heart, the human voice, and... I just don't want anything between me and my people, you know. So I start out that way, and then eventually I, of course, go through many revisions, at first on the typewriter and, and now on the computer. I see. No, I think I think everybody has his or her own way of doing things. I was just interested that that one was yours, and, and you've answered my question, which was what it is about writing out the story it works for you. Um, well, you know, I think it's true, too, though, for all writers – um, that there's a great deal of magical thinking involved with each new project, and you think, can I do it? Can I do it again? And you you tend to do it the way you did it before. It's just like the guy who thinks if he sits in a certain chair 
and wears a certain sweater that Duke will win the basketball game. Your website also mentions that Guests on Earth is the book that has been waiting for you to write. Um, what drew you to this story in particular? Well, I I go way, way back. I have to say that I am the kind of writer who um, I think I go through life sort of storing up images that, um, you know, things that strike me, strike that writer nerve. I think... Um, you know, we're all like this. I mean, there's something that will hit us and, you know, some something that will be very striking to us, whether it's an image, a historical fact, a line of dialogue, a song or whatever it is, that you know somehow there's a novel there, a story, you know, uh, whatever, a remark, and you know there's a story there. And I think as then as the months and years pass, if that doesn't go away, if in fact it gets stronger and stronger and stronger, you know that sometime you're going to write that novel. So this was the case with me. And I have to say that I have a very personal link to this novel, The Last Girls, because it is all, I mean, to this novel, Guess on Earth, because it is all set in Highland Mental Hospital, Highland Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, quite historic itself and a sort of state-of-the-art hospital, um, mental hospital during its time. And um, my dad was a patient there in the late 50s, and then decades after that, my son Josh was a patient there for two and a half years in the late 80s. And he was schizophrenic. And so I have to say that I really, I know that place. Place is something very important to me as a writer. And I know that place like the back of my hand. And um, I really understand, you know, what happens there. And I was uh, visiting there so often, especially when Josh was a you know was there he was there both in inpatient and outpatient situations he actually graduated from high school got his degree from high school there he was a jazz piano player downtown some of the time when he was well enough and uh so on i really know the place and um i became fascinated with the historic and horrific fire which had happened there in 1948 in which zelda fitzgerald died along with eight other patients, women, who were locked in a locked ward on the top floor of the one building that burned. Uh, and they were there, they were locked uh, there in that ward for their own safety because they had all had insulin shock treatments that day. And when they awakened, they would be disoriented, maybe wander out, who knows what, and a nurse was checking on them. So it really was for their own safety, but it was one of the most horrific hospital fires to ever happen in um, this country. And it, um, you know, it, it fascinated me because it was set, and it was a mystery as to who had said it, although there were some pretty good theories. And so I was fascinated by this. I was also... As a writer, even as a young girl, always fascinated by Scott and Zelda, especially Zelda. And so 
I learned everything I could about the fire, and I learned everything I could about Scott and Zelda and their relationship. And then there came this one image, uh, which was indelible in my mind and led to me writing the book. You want me to tell you what, what that is? Oh, yes, the, absolutely. The please. image. Okay, well, uh, the hospital occupies an entire mountaintop in Asheville, North Carolina, one mountaintop over, the next mountain is occupied by the fa- the famous, equally famous Grove Park Inn, which is where Scott Fitzgerald would always stay when he came to visit Zelda while she was in the hospital. But anyway, um, on the Highland Hospital mountaintop, my son and I once were walking up from the town of Asheville up to the hospital, and the hospital with this very interesting collection of buildings. It looks almost like a looks almost like a a resort, I guess. We're um, you know we're up top of the hill, and we're walking up the mountain toward the up Zillicoa Avenue toward the mountaintop hospital. And in particular, of course, the most striking building there is named Homewood, and it looks like a castle with actual turrets and battlements and so on. It's gray stone. And behind it on this afternoon that Josh and I were walking up the hill was one of those incredible winter sunsets, red, you know, huge red sky behind the battlements of Homewood and the roof lines, the crenellated battlements, and then the roof lines of all the other buildings. It was so striking. And as we're walking up, we're looking at it, and it had just so happened that that very week I was writing, I was reading a collection of the love letters, early love letters between Scott and Zelda. And uh, he kept calling her a princess, his princess. And he was very angry with her because after he had met her, at the beauty ball in Montgomery, he'd wanted her to stay true to him, you know, while he went to make back to New York and finished his novel and made enough money to marry her. But instead, she was a belle, and she was going out with about eight boys a day in Montgomery, and he was very angry. So he, he wrote her, and she said angrily, now I know why they keep princesses in towers. And she had written back, well, um, it's so nice that you write me so many letters, Scott, but I'm so damn tired of hearing that. And suddenly, as I looked up at the flame, you know, at the red sky behind the castle it, and remembered about Zelda's death, it all seemed to fit together for me. You know, the horrific fire that had happened at right there at Highland Hospital in 1948, and the Southern Princess, the imprisoned Southern Princess, who was would be imprisoned, of course, by so, so many things, including her illness, finally. And I just thought, oh, this is a novel. This is a novel, and, and I'm going to write it. And I didn't write it for a long time, but I was really, really thinking about it and reading about the Fitzgeralds, reading about early treatments for mental illness, etc. And then the novel found its own time, as they always do. And here it is. Yeah, it's lovely. It sounds like a lovely place from your descriptions of it in the book, uh, which is a little bizarre because yeah. the loveliness <laughs> of the place is somehow contrasted to its being a mental hospital. And 
then to this horrible fire that opens the book. Um, I mean, it, the, the, the fire itself doesn't open the book, but you see at the very beginning of the book the the news report from the fire itself, and then you move into the story, and then it ends the book, essentially. Uh-huh. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I was not sure about starting that way, but so many people, particularly people in North Carolina, know about the fire because it was, you know, it was very, very famous and people know about it. So I thought there's no point in in, in trying to keep it a secret where we're going here. No, I thought it was very effective. And of course, people who know about Zelda Fitzgerald know about it too. But exactly. I would like to talk a little bit about Zelda before we move into the book because sure, because she's she kind is... of the focus of the book, even if she's not the the point of view character. That's right. It's very much, she is very much a focus of the book, and she's a sort of iconic presence. Yeah, so uh, we have an international audience who may not as be, be as familiar with uh, Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald as most of the Americans. So, or if they do know about her, they may know about her as the model for Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby. And so they may not have a sense that she was a much more complex character. Daisy is a very washed-out, shallow, rich girl. Could you tell us uh, something about her life that people might help people put the novel in context? Yes, and it is true that Scott, once he met her, uh, did base Daisy Buchanan and other characters and stories and, you know, everybody on her, frankly, and also used some of her own language, famously. But let me say that first, Zelda was uh, both the product and the victim of the Deep South bell system, which sort of decreed that she spent her teenage years primping and dancing and flirting and fascinating as many boys as possible, often simultaneously. And um, she was wild. She was zany. um, She had a great deal of daring and sexual boldness. She was only 17 years old when she met the ambitious young writer, already a writer, Scott Fitzgerald, he was in the Army, and she met him at uh, a dance in Montgomery in the Beauty Ball. Uh, He was a soldier stationed nearby, but he fell madly in love with her. Everybody fell madly in love with her, and he um, wanted her to remain true to him while he raised enough, made enough money for them to get married. She infuriated him by continuing to go out with other boys, etc. But then they did marry two years later when she was only 17. So remember, she was largely uneducated. She hadn't been anywhere but Montgomery, Alabama, and she was totally um, unprepared for, she was untraveled, uneducated. She was totally unprepared for the uproarious lifestyle that he was going to throw her into, a wild lifestyle of uh, living uproariously in hotels and rented rooms in several countries uh, and drinking all the time. Drinking was a huge factor. A huge factor. Um, Ring Lardner had the, made the famous remark, Mr. Fitzgerald is a novelist, and Mrs. Fitzgerald is a novelty. But he, throughout, was co-opting Zelda's personality and her life and occasionally her actual writing for his own fiction. And at first, she was kind of flattered, but then later, um, she was even complicit. 
But later she made the famous remark, Mr. Fitzgerald, I believe that is how he spells his name. She wrote this in a magazine. I believe that is how he spells his name. Seems to believe that plagiarism begins at home. Uh, <laughs> which is a great remark. So so she was brilliant, I have to say. She was wild, she was zany, she was not really educated, but she was brilliant. And her own writing, she wrote all the time, was came from her already somewhat disordered mind, and it was wildly imagistic and original, and more like Virginia Woolf, frankly, than, than anybody else. Um, but he didn't like for her to to write, I have to say, or, you know, or put her own name on things. So she did publish a really interesting novel named Save Me the Waltz when she had already been in mental institutions for for two years, interestingly enough. So she was a writer. She was also very talented dancer. She'd done that when she was young, and then she took up the study of the, the serious study of the ballet in... Um, uh, France, uh, too late, too late. She was um, already 27, and then she would claim later that Scott kept her from, from doing that either. But um, actually, she, actually, she was ill. She was very ill, and the, throwing herself into dance with such concentration at that age with the, Madame, the famous Madame Egorova really did plunge her into her first hospitalization, from which she never really, uh, really recovered. And so the question is, you know, how ill was Elba? And the answer is very. She had a brilliant but um, psychotic mind most of the time, a chaotic mind, let us say. And she was really unable to organize these brilliant ideas and images and she had um several horrible uh episodes of psychosis I, I think that today she would probably be classified as bipolar severely bipolar rather than uh schizophrenic dementia precox was what they call schizophrenia then but because and i say that because she kept coming back she would be completely psychotic and then she would write something beautiful she would you know i have i have read all of her writings published and unpublished and they are just remarkable and also not only was she a writer and continued dancing even in the hospital she was choreographing and dancing um but she was a painter she was a visual artist and actually she painted many of her best paintings at Highland Hospital. So um, my book is, is very con- very concerned, I think, with the relationship between creativity um, and all these various forms and, um, and mental illness because there is, of course, a big relationship. And, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very carefully looking at that, I think. And so Zelda... Um, was very talented. She was an amazingly talented artist in all these different um, different realms. But finally, um, these um, treatments, the hundreds of shock treatments, which was all these hospitals really had to offer at this time before antipsychotic medication was available, took their own terrible toll. So finally, at the end, um, she was... Um, 
you know, she was not able to really think clearly in her, her final series of paintings are sort of unintelligible, as is her final novel, Caesar's Things, which she wrote. So they're, they're just wild, so they're often to religious dogma and stuff like that. So um, I guess her marriage was also very toxic for her as well as for Scott, although you've got to say they loved each other, even at the end when he was living in California with Sheila Graham. Um, trying to make a buck from the movies, he was supporting her in style and they're keeping her in the hospital, sending their daughter to private school, uh, Ethel Walker in Connecticut. And, you know, so it, I think it was what the French call a folie à deux, actually, the, the craziness of two, where each one sort of encourages and brings out both the worst and the best in each other and nobody can put on the brakes. So it was a fascinating, uh, fascinating study for me of this couple, and particularly Zelda, because I don't think she's ever gotten her due as um, as a real artist in all the, the many ways she was such an artist. I think there are a lot of interesting points there. I mean, first off, especially between manic depression and creativity, there's quite a strong link that's been established scientifically I think that yes. especially having a little bit of manic depression apparently is, is a good thing for an artist not, not too much but a little but, bit you know, because because creativity and originality what is that 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 is really depends upon the ability to uh, to think to imagine outside the box a little bit but the danger is can you can you get back Right. Can you harness you know. it? Can you put it on the page? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Can you put it on the page and then then also live a quote unquote normal life or sort of normal? And it's it's hard. I mean, so many of our famous artists and um, writers and so on have you know have had a touch of this or have been flat out manic depressive. Right. And it's not uncommon, especially in the past, for them to use alcohol as a way of. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. But I mean, they're, they're, I was interviewing uh, someone whose who's, who's father had been a waiter at the, the Grove Park Inn and often served, served, you know, taking care of Scott. He would go up there and live for weeks at a time when he was writing and so on. And when when Scott was on the wagon, for instance, that means not drinking gin, he was drinking 30 beers a day. <laughs> I remember that from the novel, right? I, was like, I mean, you know, I, I took that down right from the horse's mouth. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are two things I don't want to forget. Uh, one is the, the sort of definition of craziness, which at least in some of the characters in your novel seems to be more like you're being a pain to your family or something like that. Yeah, um, you know, and this was very interesting to me because I, I did um, – you know, I did have access. I mean, I did read a whole, about a whole lot of different people who came to Highland Hospital and why they came. And a large number of them, I have to say, were women who had been sort of shipped up there from the deep south where they had failed to fit into their husbands or their families' ideas of how they should behave as proper southern ladies. And so certainly I knew I had to have a character that would represent that whole group. 
it was very hard to uh in that time you know to uh to get away from these social you know marital expectations and so the character that represents i think that large group of patients who really were at Highland Hospital of women patients was um of course um of course, uh, wait, why is she, why is her name going out of my <laughs> Dixie. head? Ah, my goodness, huh? It's Dixie, right? Of course, Dixie. <laughs> yeah, so Dixie was really, um, you know, was really representative, I think, of, of something that, you know, will really also of being a bell because that, you know, those, those, um, strictures and expectations still apply. Um, and the other thing I want to get to eventually is is the treatments, but we don't want to go too far in before we mention that the main character of this story is Evelina Toussaint uh, That's of right. New Orleans. And and, yeah, and I have to say, this has been an issue because people have said, well, you know, since she's such a character, why is Zelda the narrator? And the reason is because that in order to be absolutely, I'm just absolutely determined to be faithful to any real person I put in her novel, and in order to be true to Zelda, I would have to write exactly like Zelda writes, which is, um, you know, her style wildly imagistic. Things like verb tense and continuity just go right out the window. And she has things like flowers or speaking and hours or marching and trees or singing and all these things happen in no, in a random order so often so it would not it would not only be hard for me to write it would be hard for you to read and i and i did use her style in several places you know i I had uh several letters that she'd written that my narrator finds and a diary entry and you know this and that but i realized that she couldn't be the storyteller and so i thought well who could be my viewpoint character because i didn't want to have a first person viewpoint character who would who would draw it all together. And finally, I hit upon the idea of a younger patient who would be a sort of a piano prodigy, and she would be an accompanist. Therefore, she would be have access, because Highland Hospital was characterized by musical events all the time. This is not made up. They had concerts. They had they gave musical shows they had afternoon teas with music they had every single thing they were doing you know full-scale productions all the time and somebody has to play the piano and so I thought okay I will have a little pianist who will be my viewpoint character and she will have access to all these other major people uh, including of course Zelda who is choreographing for everything and uh and that's what I'll do. And so then I, I backtracked and, and made up such a character and uh, her life. I got really interested in her as well because she is, of course, uh, an artist in her own right, though finally decides rather than being the, the solo act, you know, the star, that she's the accompanist, which works well for my purposes because she's also the listener. To everybody else's stories. So tell us about Evelina, because she's really not, I mean, she does have some problems that get her sent to Highland, but she's also really in the category of not so much crazy as unwanted. Yes, she is. Well, Evelina Toussaint, all saints, I guess, is her. Evelina Toussaint is her name, and the French name is because she's from New Orleans. 
and she is the illegitimate daughter of a fancy lady, an exotic dancer and courtesan there in New Orleans, um, with whom she shares a, an apartment. And um, this uh, beautiful mother of hers, is a, a, a rich cotton broker, falls in love with her, and he keeps the two of them and sets them up in a in the apartment and then in a, a little house and so on, and another baby is born. But things go rapidly um, downhill when the baby dies, and the mother kills herself, leaving this broker, this very wealthy man, with a little, um, you know, with Evelina. What to do with Evelina, who is only 12 years old? So he tries taking her into his own home with disastrous results. Evelina stops eating. Um, she starts burning her arms with matches, etc. And somehow they, this family knows about Highland Hospital, which was, as I say, the, the place where many Southern families sent daughters and wives they didn't know what to do with. And so she shipped up to, um, up to Highland Hospital as a disturbed child and um, lives there. For several, you know, for several years, uh, finally uh, attracting the attention of Mrs. Carroll, doctor, the, the head of the hospital's wife, who was a famous, famous singer and musician and piano player. She was a concert pianist in Europe herself, and this is all true. And so she takes Evelina under her wing, and Evelina really lives at the hospital and does get better and eventually gets a job on staff. So she's the perfect narrator. In, in many ways, and it's also true that there were many people who were actually living at that hospital, other children who were historic, historical, who were there, uh, again, because the parents, I think, didn't know quite what to do with them, so the Carols took them in. That's great, and she she lives there for quite a long time. I mean, there's some a couple of years when she's away and she gets married. Yes, she stuff, goes but... away to the Peabody Institute of Music, and then she has her own little career in a disastrous love affair herself, and um, you know, and comes back and just you know, just at the time that uh, right short, you know, in the months preceding the fire. But she also has friends there, and we've we've yes. talked a little bit about Dixie. I think we perhaps should at least mention Jinx. She's quite a character. Oh well, Jinx was so Jinx was really interesting to me because you know this was um, this was the time of all sorts of things were going on in this country. One thing, of course, was lobotomy. Although lobotomies were not actually being done at Highland, still there were a few uh, cases of box lobotomy and so on there. But it was also the time of eugenics, where girls who were considered to be too promiscuous or whatever were uh, ordered by the court often or just by their families to be sterilized. And um, Jinx is uh, somebody, I, I did a lot of research into, um, you know, what happened to um, to girls, say, poorer girls, and it often happened to, uh, to girls of color as well, who were judged to be promiscuous, who were judged to be too wild, who seemed to be on their own, who were perhaps prostituting themselves, often to make money for their families. Well, they would be sent to these various... Um, girls institutions in North Carolina in particular is where I was researching this and um, sterilized and there was a famous institution here named Samarkand 
that was just horrific in its treatment of the girls and its frequent sterilization. And so I made my character, Jinx, um, be, uh, you know, be a girl who had been sent to Samarkand and she was described as she in court records as a, she's based on a real person, as a moral imbecile and sterilized and so on. And so um, many girls, of course, fell into this category. And so I wanted to have a character who would, who would, you know, represent that. So again, it's looping back into your big question about, you know, in a sense, what, what is crazy? Because Jinx is also not crazy. I mean, she may be. Jinx is not crazy. She is so, she has been so damaged by her treatment both by at the hands of at the hands of the law and sterilization in this incredible cruelty I mean torture literally in this this girls school Samarkand this is all historic and um you know and then sent to live with um a horrible distant relative and the 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 um uncle uh, you know sexually abuses her so she's really she's damaged she's not crazy, you know, but she's really, really damaged by what has happened to her, and it's unclear that she's ever going to be able to to not lie, you know, and to be um, be a responsible person. She's just a very damaged person at this, you know, at this point, but very charming. Uh, she has her charm, too, and, you know, what? one thing that happens a lot of times when you're in the middle of writing a book other things will just pop up that seem to fit right in. And when I was researching Jinx and, and this whole book and had already begun writing from the beginning, um, I learned from a much older relative on my mother's side of the family. I told her what I was writing about, about the mental institution. And she said, well, are you writing about Catherine? And I said, Catherine who? And she said, well, you know, our great aunt you know, who was who died in the in mental institution in Stanton, Virginia. And I said, what? And it turned out in my mother's family from Chincoteague Island, Virginia, um, there had been a cousin who whose parents had both been alcoholic and died. So the cousin came to live in my mother's family and um, had, and then they had all, somebody had put her into the mental institution for being, quote, oversexed. And then she had died in the mental, she'd been sterilized, and she died in the mental institution of the flu in 1919. So I just had this in my, I had this in my own family and never, ever knew it, this type of story. So, so Jinx is another favorite character here. So this, uh, one of the things I thought was very interesting is that there is a kind of shift between the early days when Evelina is in uh, Highland Hospital when it's still being run by the Carrolls, and then later when she goes back, it's been taken over by Duke University, and at least from a modern perspective, it seems like it was the treatments were more progressive in the earlier period than later when they're doing the insulin shock treatments and um, which sounds incredibly dangerous, apart from anything well, else. Well, I have to say, I, I think that when it was just Dr. Carroll's sanitarium, you know, it was a more uh, more of a humane sort of a, you know, sort of a place. But 
after, you know, because once it was taken over by Duke Hospital, there's a whole lot of, you know, real medical, um, you know, regimens and so on that go into place. But um, I should say, even when Dr. Carroll, when it was just Dr. Carroll's sanitarium, still, he had some pretty scary treatments that were going on, you know, out of sight, too. And one thing he did... um, as you as you move up toward electroshock, which was the most progressive of the shock treatments, you go through insulin insulin shock, which was he did insulin shock too. But he also, before insulin shock came in, did something really really scary in the first days, which I something called there was something called metrazole shock. And before metrazole shock, he was um, injecting horse blood into a schizophrenic spinal column. Dear God, it sounds medieval, doesn't it? It sounds medieval, doesn't it? I mean, I have no idea why this, I mean, you know, how. But anyway, so there were, you know, many cures seem really benign, like uh, the rest cure, which Evelina undergoes when she first arrives. She's so nervous and thin and so on. And the rest cure is basically sort of just kind of... um, almost swaddling you, wrapping you up and, you know, and kind of sedating you. And you just, every time you wake up, they give you cream of wheat or oatmeal and so on. And you're sort of forced to, to rest. And I think that sounds pretty good. Yeah, that one wasn't so bad, right? <laughs> I could go with that. But as I say, uh, Dr. Carroll also did what he called a freeze wrap, which was to literally wrap people up. You know, and then and ice them down, and um, you know, lower their body temperature, which I find, uh, which I think sounds awful. So there were many different things. I, I think Dr. Carroll's really progressive. Um, he he was the first person. I mean, he was one of the first physicians with a you know with a, a, a notable hospital staff and so on who was really into what is now called occupational therapy. I mean, just the idea that you shouldn't sit around and be crazy, but you should be doing something. So he had all of his patients who possibly could walking five miles a day, doing all sorts of exercise, dance, games, etc., and also maintaining the extensive grounds of the hospital itself. So they were all out gardening for the, you know, kitchen garden, and they were taking care of shrubs and plants and grass and, you know, all of this kind of thing. So all of this was very, and just the idea of a schedule, I think, you know, is always good. And so all this was, and then all the, you know, the dance therapy, the music therapy, all the art, all the painting, woodworking, all this kind of thing was really very progressive at the time, not to mention the uh, the theatricals which he had going on all the time, and the musical things, which his wife was superintending. I have a most wonderful photograph of Dr. Carroll bounding out of the forest wearing a sort of doublet and tights, and he was in Midsummer Night's Dream. He himself was a character. All the staff were always really interacting, and the townspeople got involved, and they would have dances where the townspeople would come and, dance and do things with the patients too it was sort of conditioning for the outside world again which dr carroll felt was important so you know historically he he and his and his methods were very interesting 
Yeah, it was interesting. Um, were you surprised by some of the stuff that you found out? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was totally, I was totally surprised. I was totally surprised by some of these, um, you know, some of these cures that had gone on. I was totally surprised to find out that as late as 1948, which was the year actually of the of the horrific fire in the book, but as late as 1948, the person who had invented um, the uh, lobotomies won the Nobel Prize. Did you know that? No. no. Yes. Yes. And um, also, there was a character I, I couldn't really work him into my book because he lobotomies, as I say, were not done at Highland Hospital. But there was this guy named this this real doctor named Doctor Freeman, who was literally traveling the South during the nineteen. 19- 40s in this vehicle that he had had specially equipped so that he could just do lobotomies in it. And he sort of invented the transorbital lobotomy where the, it's like a, something like an ice pick goes in at the corner of the eye. And so it's really easily done. And he was traveling the South. And for instance, if he came to your town, say it was Spartanburg, South Carolina, or some little town in Georgia, you know, doctors there, people there could decide if there was anybody, you know, for whom lobotomy was indicated, and he would do it when he came to your town. And this went on, and this is really true. So there were many things that I found totally surprising, and and I was surprised. I was surprised, as I say, by um, by Zelda herself, by the uh, the depth and extent of her talent and also by the uh, attachment, the really strong attachment of Zelda and Scott, their last letters that they exchanged with each other before his death. He died sooner. He died in 1940 in California, and she would not die until 1948. But the, the regard in which they held each other, that I mean, that this was, this was the kind of love I sort of I was just really surprised. I was surprised by a lot of things when I began writing this book. It's a really wonderful book. It's beautifully described. Uh, there are lots of things that, unfortunately, we're not going to have a chance to get to. Like the, um, I, I hadn't realized until you started off talking that the the characters who are in many ways the staff at Highland Hospital. The, the, these are this is another way where you you get in people who live in that region that you grew up in. Yes, yes. This is another in a way. This is this is sort of an extension of all my mountain books because you know when you have these grand institutions set in the mountains like the Grove Park Inn and Highland Hospital. Well, who's working in the kitchen? You know, and who is making up the beds and cleaning the rooms and doing that? These are mountain people who are coming in to have these jobs. And so I have several of them become very, you know, very major characters in the book, too. And then that lets me look at class, you know, in the mountains, you know, and so on. And it's really the insider-outsider thing, which, which makes it even more interesting for me, but it's also uh, accurate in that uh, one of those mountain uh, workers in the kitchen is probably it was um, probably was the one who who actually set the fire. Although this is this is never conclusively proven. It adds another dimension to the book, I think, as well. I mean, there there's so many different kinds of conflict among the characters and within the characters because they're all. 
even if they're not actually crazy, most of the patients have been dubbed crazy, so that gives them something that they have to deal with. But in addition to that, there's this sort of social conflict, uh, which it doesn't ever, well, I mean, in some places it does flare up, but even when it's not flared up, it's sort of there, you know, this yeah, it's just a, yeah, it was just a situation in which I could really um, deal with a whole lot of these themes that just fascinate me. I mean, that, and I was trying to, to have it all happen, you know, on this, this kind of continuum continuum of you know okay who's crazy and who's not you know and who's to say finally and uh and it you know it is sort of asked the question you know the guests on earth i mean who are the guests on earth well according to the the quote uh, that you know that's in the book it's got the the title you know comes from a letter that scott fitzgerald wrote to their daughter Scotty, and he said, the insane are always mere guests on earth, eternal strangers, forever knocking on closed doors, carrying broken decalogues, no, carrying broken decalogues that they cannot read, forever knocking on closed doors, which is, you know, very sad. I mean, a decalogue would be like the Ten Commandments written on stone. Things like, well, okay, something that tells you how to live, and, and they can't read it. They don't know how to live because their illness is keeping them, you know, outside. And they, they're homeless, you know, psychologically, symbolically homeless in that way. But what I'm trying to say here, you know, is that, well, but we're all guests on Earth in a way. And we're only here, you know, for just a little while. And, and in what ways are we like these people in what ways are they you know are they like us um and you know we're all a little bit crazy one way or another so i just want to uh to think about that you know want us all to uh to think about that yeah i you've you've just answered the question that i haven't asked yet which is what you would like readers to take away i think that's probably your well, answer well i think right? i would that's right and i would even you know um as I said, I'm especially interested in women and madness and the resonance between art and madness. But I think I really do, having such a such a family experience myself of life within these institutions, you know, I want to show that very real lives are lived within these illnesses and also within such institutions. And, you know, asylum is a word that means place of shelter, of mm-hmm. refuge, after all, first. And um, so I just, you know, and finally I think if this book, what I'd like for people to take away is just, um, just, you know, what it's like to be crazy, what it's like to be called crazy, what it's like to be in such places and so on. And I really, and what it's like for the families and also what it's like for the caretakers and if I could uh, you know dedicate it to anybody it would be to all the caretakers I think you know the families and the the friends and the advocates and the mental health professionals you know everybody who serves as a host for these you know precious guests on earth that are here among us so this this particular story I think gave me uh, um, a way to talk about these things because I don't think a novel can you know, you can't have the themes be 
too strong. I mean, it's not some sort of instruction manual. I think it's more like a prism that you just hold up to the light and you turn it this way and you turn it that way and and uh, maybe it offers a new view into uh, into these issues. So that that's really what I was what I was what I was wishing that people would take away. I think that's a lovely way to put it. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, actually, um, I am writing. Um, a, I'm writing a series of, I guess you'd say, vignettes or little, little, I don't know, little essays or something about um, about what I was mentioning earlier. My own growing up um, in the mountains. About it's going to be a little book about. Um, I'm pretty much done, actually, about place and memory in stories, the nature of stories. And I have uh, interviewed a lot of people that are involved in it, too. I was um, other people that are involved as well that I knew or have known. And um, I'm really spurred on, I have to say, to do that because my hometown has recently been completely destroyed as a um, because it kept flooding, and so as a flood control, you know, as a flood control, flood prevention measure, um, the whole town has been, you know, eradicated, including my father's dime store where I literally grew up, and um, the whole town is gone, and the the river has been widened there. And what was the downtown is gone, and my own, my parents' own home was just blown up, demolished uh, this past August. And so this is really, I mean, I think we all lose our childhoods. We all lose the scene of our, you know, the scene of our youth. But to have it go in such a dramatic fashion has been really, really galvanizing for me. So it has made me want to write little word pictures of what isn't there anymore, I guess you'd have to say. Yeah, it must be like a kind of death, really. There's yeah. Death and I, in the I family, say. So. Yeah, it is a death in the family. It is. And um, somehow, the, you know, losing the dime story was just as hard as, as my parent, you know, as my, as my home, my parents' house and so on. But so I think the name of it is going to be just Dime Store. Thank <laughs> you so much for speaking with us today. Well, listen, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Lee Smith, the author of Guests on Earth. You can find out more about her at www.leesmith.com. That's L-E-E-S-M-I-T-H as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit my blog at http blogcplesleycom where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction. <laughs>